Hello, we are the Manic Street Speakers. Welcome to episode two. Uh, coming up in this episode, we have our first interview with James from the Oasis podcast, and we talk about the early arrogance of both, both bands. But first, let me introduce you to a lady who is part of a choir. So pitch perfect her tone, she could shatter the windows of Catherine Jenkins. Not only that, she can do it while singing and dancing the Macarena. It's Emma. Thank you very much. I'm nodding because I do love the Macarena. How could you sing the Macarena high-pitched? <laughs> yeah, I take back everything I said about you being pitch perfect. I just want to say I don't sing the high notes because I'm not very good at them. Would you like to hear yours? I would love it. To my left, or possibly my right, because we're literally in different counties, so I have no idea of his directional proximity, is a man who is currently the only person I've witnessed the actual view from Stowe Hill with. He's got multiple ways of pronouncing the word audacity, and it's not a surprise that his favourite TV show features a vampire, given that one of his earliest memories is of biting a piece of his own tongue off. Let's hope that was an accident and not an early sign of bloodlust. It's Devon's most devoted dog father and the world's most biggest fan of Jenna Coleman's nose. It's Michael! <laughs> I never thought that was going to end. The thing is, last time I feel like I, I didn't really do you justice. It was like a two line and I thought, no, I'm writing an essay this time. <laughs> my fir- It's not technically my first memory. Again, we, we lie on our intros. <laughs> It's my first memory is going to hospital in the back of a car, having just bitten the tip of my tongue off. <laughs> I'm sort of torn because this is genuinely grossing me out, but I sort of want to know how you did it. Well, apparently, my brother says he's my brother's four years older than me. He says I was about two or three months old when it happened, which is quite young for a first memory. Memory, I think, and I was just prancing about on the coffee table, sli- <laughs> slipped. When you say months, do you mean years? What can I say? I'm very advanced. (laughs) I'm only going on what my brother tells me. It might have been five, six, seven months. I don't know. And and I just slipped and I fell and hit my jaw on the edge of the coffee table and bit a bit of my tongue off. And but I don't remember that. I just remember being in the back of the car holding something to my mouth with with everyone with everyone panicking around me. You must have been older than that. Because having worked with small children for nearly 20 years, I have yet to meet a two to three month old who could bite off their own tongue and prance around a coffee table. I don't want to, like, you know, trash your childhood memories. Next episode, I will, I will get the confirmation from my brother. I, I think I was probably about eight or nine months, really. I think we need that. That is a fact I have never known about you. I've never noticed. Not that I look at your tongue. Well, the ladies don't complain. I did finger guns and no one saw. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I've got a bit of news for you about what happened in my life this week. Exciting. We've had our first troll on Twitter. I'll, I'll set up a bit of backstory. We, about a year or so ago, I think it was January, February last year, I contacted you about doing a podcast, didn't I? And I was like, we've got these ideas, we can do this, we can do that. Anyway, it didn't happen. Both our lives got in the way. Um... Late last year, a Manix podcast did come out. Someone beat us to it. Yes. It's called Do You Love Us? As things stand, I, I enjoy it. It's quite an in-depth uh, look into their history and, and their albums and things like that. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to interject and just say I haven't heard it. 
No, I've only heard like uh, the first two episodes. But when it first came out, I was a bit like, oh no, someone's done the idea. And and right. but when I heard it, I realised it's it's going to, it's a different tone for what we were going for. And and you know they're a big enough band with a big enough fan base. I think it, you can you know have two podcasts, especially two different toned ones. Yes, of course. And and we had a, a, like someone just tweeted me and said, you stole their material. <gasps> and I'm, <laughs> I'm like, considering I've only heard like a couple, of po- a couple of episodes, I was like, what? What have we stolen? They talked about Nostalgic Pusshead 2. <laughs> I'm going to just go out on a limb here. I'm going out on a limb a lot today. That seems to be my phrase of the podcast. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and just say, I think most fans have discussed that at some point. <laughs> This was exactly my point, especially as it was on an episode about gold against the soul, that which they were doing apparently. Of course, they're going to discuss it. Yeah, I'd be more concerned if they didn't. Does he think? And I, it's definitely he. There's no doubt about it. Oh, even oh. though they they were faceless and all that, does he think one topic topic can only be discussed once on Earth, and that's it? That's the yeah. topic discovered. That is it. Unfortunately, I have in the past done videos on my youtube channel which i'm not gonna plug don't worry uh, and then gone back and seen that much bigger youtuber has done a similar thing and it's always by accident i've ne- unless i actually say i've been inspired by such and such this week but the amount of panic that i get and think oh, i'm gonna get emails i'm gonna get twitter comments from people who are like oh my god you've nipped their idea but then you have to sort of take a step back and go well, actually, I've talked about not being able to sleep, and sometimes that is a thing that yeah. is universal. It's a universal experience. So I'm just going to go and say that if you're a Manix fan and you own a copy of Gold Against the Soul, there has been a point in your life where you've looked at it and gone, how the hell do you pronounce that? It comes from another weird place as well, because he, he heard our episode one first, yeah. and then he heard their Gold Against the Soul episode. Right. So he can't live in a universe where another person would do, i.e. we record our podcast first before, we still haven't heard that episode. Yeah. Before we hear that episode, I will hear it in the future, I'll listen to it in the future, but he's the only person that can do it in that order. Some people are very strange. (laughs) To be honest with you, the exciting thing is knowing that he's probably listening to this and getting very irate and who will have the angry tweet next he probably will love his five minutes of fame with 20 listeners oh. that we get so far or whatever <laughs> hey we love all 20 of you <laughs> apart from him yeah we love 19 of you in that case now we've got to do like be like a professional podcast it's time yeah. for the news We talked last week about James and his second solo album, but we have more news this week on it. Oh, that's exciting. It's a concept album about a Chilean songwriter called Victor Jara. And I can't apologise to him about my pronunciation because he's dead. Um, It's (laughs) it's expected to be out in August, and there's a really big feature on it in this month's Mojo magazine. What do you reckon? To me, that sounds of know your enemy kind of vibes i think that does sound really interesting i'd be interested to hear some samples of the tone they're going with i've done research and when i said when i've done research i mean i've been on wikipedia 
<laughs> he was a teacher, a theatre director, poet, singer-songwriter, and communist political activist. He was arrested after the Chilean coup in 1973 and tortured during interrogations and shot dead. So I don't think it's going to be a happy album. Sir, that's not perky. The James album is called Even in Exile. Well, it's, it's quite out to these times, isn't it? Especially yeah. you. How, how long have you been in ex- exile? I have been exiled from society for nine weeks now. And I'm not allowed back into society until the 1st of July. It's, um, I, I'm just doing penance for my many, many crimes. I am a hamster in my pod cage, just, just scratching at the bars. <laughs> Now it's time for the first of our batch of Manix origin stories. We've had good feedback. Emma, do you want to start? Before I read this, I'm just going to quickly say that um, I'm very used to reading children's stories. So if I read this with any strange intonation, I apologise. Are you sitting comfortably, boys and girls? So the first one we have is from Kim, who is at Manic Sleep on Twitter. And she says, or he says, Kim is a unisex name. So, you know, I don't want to just assume. Short version, sitting at parents' house one evening, leafing through Sunday supplements, grinding my teeth at the bourgeois, aspirational bullshit being peddled in it when the Mannix came on to Strictly. God, I remember that. I knew it wasn't the usual fare for primetime BBC programmes, so I looked up as James sang, crashed any happiness you knew, and I was lost to them forever. I thought, I like that. I want to hear it again. And Nikki looked great. I went home and looked on YouTube for the performance, which hadn't been uploaded yet. So while I was waiting, poked about at the sidebar and heard Primitive Painters, me and Stephen Hawking, and I think Charles Windsor. I decided I'd rather like the cut of their jib. I love that expression, Kim. Well, well used. And went to buy some of their stuff. I bought the albums in twos and threes randomly and loaded them onto my iPod, which is permanently on random select. By the time I decided to see them live, the litmus test for a band, in my opinion, they had declared a two-year hiatus from playing in the UK and I had to go to Vienna to see them in 2012. That is awesome. A veteran of some 50-plus gigs now, I know I will cry when I see them walk on a stage again. I have tickets for Halifax, Victorious and Cardiff and I'm keeping my fingers crossed, but I know it's not looking good. The Killers gigs have been rescheduled for 2021, so that's sorted and like everyone else, we'll just have to wait and see. That's crazy, isn't it? Since, so they've come a fan in 2010 and seen them over 50 times. That is some dedication because I have been a fan since uh, 1999 and I've seen them, I think, less than 20 times. Yeah. So now yeah. I feel like I need to pull my socks up. You're sacked. Thanks. I knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one from uh, Ellie. Hello, my name is Ellie. Firstly, I would like to say that I really liked the first episode. See? Thank you, Ellie. And I'm excited to see what future episodes are like. Anyway, 
Here is how I got into the Mannix. Before I started listening to them, I had only heard the name due to them being mentioned on TV. I am only 15, which would explain why I'd never previously heard of their music, as the Mannix aren't the sort of bands that are on the radar for people my age. I love that there's a 15-year-old Mannix fan. It makes me genuinely so happy. It's amazing, isn't it? 15. Younger Mannix fans, yes! Yes! (laughs) One memory which I had of them before being a fan was seeing seeing the Kevin Cummings photography book of them on sale in HMV. I didn't buy it because I wasn't a fan yet, but I saw Richie and Nicky in the front. I literally thought Richie was a woman just by looking at the cover because he looked so feminine. However, I got into them in 2018 and it wasn't due to resistance is futile at all. It was because of an article I read. The article was about Myra Hindley and Ian Brady have been referenced in artworks and songs and therefore includes the line about Hindley from Archives of Pain. I decided to listen to the song on YouTube. This was my first time actively listening to the Mannix. It shocked me because I had previously had the assumption that the Mannix were a dad rock band. Not the sort of band who would sing about mass murderers. But since becoming a fan, I have realised that they have been both at some point. I thought, oh, dad, dad rock. Mm. She's not entirely wrong. Yes, she's not really, is she? I thought the song was freaking incredible and I especially liked JDB's guitar solo. I saw the YouTube video of From There to Here documentary. It had just had Richie circa 1992 in the thumbnail. I assumed he was a singer, so I once I googled was surprised when I googled the Mannix and saw three middle-aged men. After more googling, I found out that Richie in fact wasn't the singer, but was still kind of the front man, and he went missing, which interested me a lot. A couple of days later, I went into HMV to buy the Holy Bible on CD, which is the first time I had been so eager to go out and buy an album. I listened to the album at home, and this is what got me hooked onto the Mannix. I have to admit, my love for the Mannix is mostly based around the first five albums and not much after. So I'm not a hardcore fan that listens to all their albums, but a fan of their stuff in the 90s mostly. Mostly when Richie was in the band. I feel like this is understandable though, because they were like a completely different band then than they are now. However, I do like some of their stuff from the past 15 years, but it doesn't stick out to me as much. The Holy Bible is definitely my favourite album, not just by them, but by any band. Everything Must Go would be my second favourite album of theirs because of the anthemic songs and I think it's their most cohesive album. Since becoming a fan, I have tried to get my friends to listen to them. It didn't work. In fact, the only person at school who likes the Mannix is a teacher there. I nearly got one friend into them, but that failed. My mum likes the Mannix because of me, but says she thinks the Holy Bible is too dark and so she just listens to the later stuff. So as of yet, I can relate to no one about my love for the Mannix from 1991 to 1994. After listening to the Holy Bible, I started to have a fascination of Richie and his lyrics. I thought Rob Johanovic's book about him, which is actually a bit crap, but also read lots of... I haven't read that one. but But also read lots about him on the internet. Everything about him interested me and I appreciated him as a lyricist. Previously, I had listened to the bands for the sound of their music, but now I listen to the Mannix because of their lyrics. Not just Richie's lyrics, but Nicky's as well. I'm kind of jealous that I didn't write Design for Life. However, I also appreciate JDB's guitar skills. He is such an underrated guitarist. I liked how the Mannix complained about their boredom of being in a small town where nothing happens. I can heavily relate to that. The Mannix actually seem to have something to say, unlike other bands to the 90s. 
I'm looking at you, Oasis. I don't, um, I don't think you'll like the interview later. <laughs> and what, set, what they said in their interviews and lyrics was so important that it influenced me 20 years later. Not many bands can do that. So yeah, that's how I got into the Manics. I'm hopefully going to see them in September at Peace Hall in Halifax if COVID lets me. It will be my first Manics gig and I'm already planning on wearing a self-made Manics inspired statement shirt. I just haven't decided what to spray paint onto it yet. Anyways, look forward to reading, you reading, and I look forward to future episodes of the podcast. I, I love Ellie. And Ellie reminds me that just the entirety of that email, I was listening, I was like, that is exactly me when I was first getting into the Manics. That's exactly how I was. Everything she said about the anthemic songs on Everything Must Go as well, that was exactly how I was. Because they are my, spoiler, they are my two favourite Manix albums in that order for those reasons. And yes, so more power to you, Ellie. Okay, next one. Okay, this one is from Karen Davis, who says, uh, Hi Manix speaker, it's all Jay Wilgoose's fault. So there you go. I mean, let's just throw that out there, Jay Wilgoose, your fault. Even though I'm a contemporary of Sean, he's just over a month younger than me, I was never really into them until the last few years. We went to the Liberty Stadium gig for the EMG 20 tour, even then primarily to see public service broadcasting. I remember that. Then Every Valley came out and I was captivated by the vocal on Turn No More. We went to the first night of the Every Valley tour at Cardiff Great Hall. I was really hoping to see James perform live and just a little bit disappointed that it was only a video that time. Then PSB announced a tour of the Valleys. Things got strategic. There was a gig at Blackwood Miners Institute that looked the most likely for the local boy to turn up. We were right. Turn No More was the first track of the encore with JDB on live vocals and additional guitar riffs. I was absolutely captivated, less than 10 feet from the most beautiful man I'd ever seen singing like an angel. So I was hooked. 2019 was a bad year health-wise, but This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours 20 saw me through it, including the best gig of my life at Cardiff Castle. I wasn't there, but I've watched that so many times on YouTube. I can practically quote the little ad-libs between songs. I'm better now. This year started wonderfully with meeting James at Cardiff Poetry Festival, even getting a hug. The last gig we went to before lockdown was Valley Aid, where I managed to get Barrier right in front of the mic. Seeing James perform so close was just perfect. Now I'm looking forward to the next Mannix gig, Victorious, Halifax or Cardiff. I'll be there. Glitter, boa and leopard print at the ready. Stay safe, stay beautiful, Karen. Aww, that's awesome. I'm very glad you're better, Karen. Uh, James Fangirl. A James fangirl. We can all understand that. Okay, my next one is from Stunned Fox, who clearly doesn't suffer from memory loss. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sorry, I'm very sarcastic sounding. <laughs> Hi guys, love the first episode of the podcast, looking forward to future episodes. I got into the Mannix in 2013, knowing practically nothing about them before. I'm an Australian, they were never quite as big here. I was really into Paul Heaton's band at the time, so I watched the Beautiful South's 1996 Jules Holland special on YouTube, in which James Dean Bradfield has a guest spot singing lead vocals on Old Red Eyes is Black. It seems strange to be drawn to a band that combines such a focus on their lyrics in that way, but it was because of that that I first looked into their catalogue, and was hooked pretty much immediately. Which only made it even odder when three months later, the first new Manic song released whilst I was a fan was Rewind the Film with vocals mostly not by JDB at all. Ah, I want to 
absolutely love the beautiful sound. Not gonna lie. So okay. I, I have got one more. This is from Phil, and it says, I have a memory of seeing the theme from MASH on top of the pops, but my first real encounter with the Mannix was either Matthew from Game On singing along with From Despair to Wear, or La Tristessa being on one of those compilation albums actually titled The Best Album in the World Ever. God, I remember all of those. <laughs> I started hearing whispers from my Britpop school chums that the new Manic Street Preacher song, A Design for Life, was really good. I then heard Everything Must Go in amongst Radio 1's extensive Nebworth coverage and thought it sounded amazing. I also caught the band's Phoenix Festival performance on the same station, hearing motorcycle emptiness and no surface or feeling for the first time. None of these things convinced me to check them out properly, however. What swung it was when they performed Australia on Jules Holland's 1996 Hootenanny. I still revisit that performance and it still ignites something in my soul every time. With my Christmas money, I bought Blur's self-titled album. I thought it was pretty flimsy, although it grew on me, to the extent that by the summer I had a t-shirt with the album cover on the front and the phrase I feel heavy metal on the back. Had I known about the slogan on the back, I would not have bought it. I also bought Manson's Attack of the Grey Lantern album. I'd seen them perform Wide Open Space on Top of the Pops the previous year. I really liked the song, but I thought they looked like a boy band. The debate raged back and forth in my head as I picked up a copy of the single in HMV and then returned it to the shelves. Seeing them perform the song again on TFI Friday, I was convinced they were a proper rock band, so I could get the album after all. My immovable top three bands are Pink Floyd, Smiths and Mannix, but Manson would definitely be top ten or even top five. I also got Everything Must Go. Having been aware of the band for well over a year, I would finally listen to the whole thing start to finish on my mid-range Kenwood CD Walkman, which really did go loud. Over the years, every song has been my favourite for some reason or other. Removables is in the category of manic songs I can't help but sing along to. But on the first, those first listens, it was Enola alone, mainly for that shiny guitar just before James bellowed the song title. I also really loved the end of No Surface or Feeling, which reminded me of going down a ski slope, something I've never done. <laughs> great deal about the band's history but I gathered that there had once been a fourth Manic Street Preacher called Richie. Just in time for that album's fourth anniversary I bought a CD of Gold Against the Soul. The pictures of the band in the booklet looked very different to those in Everything Must Go but I really liked them because they reminded me of one of my favourite TV shows Newman and Baddiel in Pieces. A show with lots of scenes in cemeteries and musical references at a time when I knew nothing about contemporary music outside Urban Cookie Collective, The Key, The Secret, Jimmy Nail, Ain't No Doubt and Ain't No Love by Sub Sub. 
Of course I'd already heard La Tristessa, but I had a new appreciation for it after hearing the guitar solo coming from a radio at an indoor record fair. Why songs just sound better on the radio is a matter of some intrigue to me. I'd also already heard the first 30 seconds of From Despair to Wear thanks to Matthew from Game On. I really, I remember that as well. I really enjoyed the rest of the track and I noticed <clears throat> that it was very similar styles to songs from Everything Must Go. What with its prominent strings. The melancholy tracks greatly appealed as I was entering that classic 17-year-old depressive state, although in truth, life becoming a landslide just seems to get more relevant as the years roll on. Truth. In 1997, I was more likely to be jamming to Space or Cooler Shaker than the Manics, and of course I fell hook, line and sinker for the Be Here Now hype. I did manage to catch a Radio 1 documentary on the band which shed further light on their history, although I still hadn't fully understood what had actually happened to Richie and a guitarist friend of mine lent me the VHS of Everything Live. Oh, I think I've still got mine somewhere. This was my first exposure to Motown Junk, and I just love the chords under the chorus. It's a song I'm most likely to play if handed a guitar, but I could never do it justice. I got my copy of the Holy Bible around the summer of 1998, and it's fair to say I wasn't quite ready for it. It was just too dense for me, but of course its uncompromising genius keeps revealing itself. Generation Terrorists I much preferred, and as an aspiring punk guitarist myself, it turned out that this was the band I most wanted to be in. I dutifully bought the cassette single of If You Tolerate This and watched the band perform their first number one on Top of the Pops from the McDonald's break room. The close-up documentary on the band finally filled in the gaps of their backstory. The footage of the band's early years I just adored. I was young, pissed off, and Generation Terrorists will be played constantly from this point. I bought the embossed CD of This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours, and it was a deluxe, classy and mature experience, which again, I wasn't quite ready for. My favourite track at the time was Tsunami, mainly for the incredible strings in the chorus. I would rotate this album with Manson 6 on my 12-mile bike ride to college. 12-mile bike ride to college? Yikes. The simplest things, the quietest, the childlike simplicity. Everything I need to hear, positive the way I feel. The simple of thoughts, inherently like Winnie the Pearl. Confusion is rose, oblivious to what I Being so young and pissed off as well as a dateless wonder, I got deep into the Holy Bible around this point. Simon Price's book Everything added context and I really felt like I was getting to know and love the guys in the band. At the back of the book was a complete discography with a warning that any attempt of completion was an errand only for the foolhardy or the extremely rich. Finally, my life had a purpose. 
Accusations that the band had become flabby and mid-paced obviously had gotten to them when I saw them play for the first time at V99. They played of walking abortion and debuted Masses Against the Classes. I was also pleased to hear a cassette of their Tea in the Park performance with Wire in classic form, calling Billy Bragg the biggest nose twat in the world. I wouldn't want his dick pissing on my toilet for all the money in the fucking world. Classic Nicky. He went on to diss the beta band, saying, if anyone wants to go and see them playing in a tent to one person, fuck off now. <laughs> James described them as an absolute bunch of cunts before launching into Yes. I managed to get cassette compilations of various B-sides, so I got to hear amazing songs like Sepia, Donkeys, Our Mother's Saints, and most joyously of all, the original Motown junk with its public enemy sample at the start and declara declaration, We Destroy Rock and Roll at the end. Some songs would remain just titles at the back of Simon Price's book until I discovered what Amazon Marketplace was some years later. From a phone box in Stroud, I got the news from my best Maidstone pal that we were going to Manic Millennium. Oh, it's still a source of annoyance that I wasn't allowed to go to that. I listened to my B-size tape on the way to Cardiff, met up with my pal along with his muso chums, and we made our way to the front of the stadium. Seeing as I'd nearly lost my shoe and actually lost my programme during the feeder mosh, I lost my pals as well and made my way to, to the back to completely fail to appreciate how great super furry animals were. It was a great show and of course I'd go on to relive it countless times but I was depressed and solitary on the night and the freezing hours waiting for the first train back to Stroud were the opposite of euphoric. Over the course of the year 2000 I would study Simon Price's book and record a lo-fi folk indie album called Village Idiot with my housemates. Still unreleased having enjoyed a limited run of two cassette copies and one slightly edited mini disc. On one of the tracks, You're Dead, I bellowed Dead Doll Baby in an unconvincing aping of James Dean Bradfield. We've all been there. It's much harder for me to ape James Dean Bradfield, but I try. I'll save the next 20 years for another time, as I've already waffled on enough. Thank you for the podcast. Looking forward to more. To close this email, I'd like to quote what Arthur Scargill said in his video message screened at the very start of this century. Sadly, I can't remember what he said. Cheers, Phil. <laughs> awesome! All I can say is that was intense. And thank God you were the one reading that one out. <laughs> Intense and some good storytelling, though. I like Phil's way with words. Full marks for a mention of Manson Six, one of my favourite ever albums. So I'm, I'm all on board. That was lovely. I'm really enjoying hearing everybody's stories. That is um, genuinely, I think, when you get Manix fans together, that's one of the things. How did you get into the band? I really enjoy it. So please keep sending them in. Feel free to send audio because otherwise you're just going to hear us waffling on all the time. There's so many different connecting stories of how. You yeah. just weave your way into the world and then all of a sudden everything opens up and that's that's what's interesting to me. Somebody asked me what my earliest Manix memory was and it's um, I'm going to just tell it now because I must have been um, probably 10 or thereabouts and I was running down the stairs uh, getting ready for school. My mum used to listen to Radio 1 and Life Becoming a Landslide was playing on Radio 1 and I genuinely thought they were saying like becoming a landslide. And that's the only line I remember. But at the age of 10, I used to wander around going, like becoming a landslide. And I never learned the rest. I never, you know, I was too young to think, oh, I must investigate this band further. But it's when I think back on that, it's so bizarre that little 10-year-old me just used to sing one line of a song from Gold Against the Soul. Yeah, I, I heard faster. It was on a in 1995 in a, on a Rock Soft compilation. Like it had, like it had Gun. Um, what was the Gun song called? Word Up. 
and that, all, all those kind of songs on it. And I I loved Faster, but it never at that time in 1995 made me progress to the albums. Mm. It, it, it needed a couple of years more. Needed to percolate. But yeah, we want more of your stories, so feel free to send them to manicspeaker at gmail.com. Manic speaker. It sounds like a speaker that's just gone crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, to be fair, that is what we are. <laughs> We've been in lockdown for a long time. was an honour but it no longer is to welcome <laughs> my podcast granddad even though he what? is two years younger than me well we both celebrated our 40th birthday in lockdown that's true you yeah. are, are you, because you've been doing the podcast it's james from the oasis podcast by the way hello yeah. hello you're right um you've been doing the podcast for what three odd years now yeah yeah three very odd years <laughs> it's literally odd and you would think initially, well, how can a podcast about one band last so long? <laughs> and it's it's not just about the band. It's, to me, that's what I, I love about the podcast. It's not just about a band. It's fan stories. It's it's getting people, you know, who've been involved in the making of Oasis of Music or being on, been on tour with them or supported them over the years. And it builds up this whole world almost around the band. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that what a big inspiration for me was a podcast called Fat Man on Batman. Right. Okay. So this is so we're, we're going completely out of indie music and out of the UK. Kevin Smith, the filmmaker, is a massive um, fan of uh, DC Comics and Batman and stuff like that. And he's, uh, you know, his podcasts are really good, really funny. And so he started doing one based around Batman. But it was, you know, he'd interview a like um you know an animator who worked on the batman animated series or it, it wasn't typically um you know big film stars it would be someone that you know wrote on the comics for a bit but it would be you know this two hours of you know where'd you grow up and where'd you go to school and what, but all this sort of stuff would be you know there and yeah he would touch on the batman stuff but it would just be a really interesting conversation and i just found that fascinating i'd hear you know two hours of just like you know someone t talking about their creative process and how they got into you know animation or acting or whatever it was and i just thought yeah that's fantastic um and with the whole oasis thing it's like you know you've got there's so many people that we've just seen like a brief talking head of them on like definitely maybe documentary or or something else that you or you've heard their name before but you've never really you know knew anything about them or heard them interviewed and I'm just like, well, why doesn't someone just interview all those people? Like, there's, you know, it just doesn't, it'd be, obviously it'd be great to get Liam or Noel, but there's hundreds of people that have been involved in this band over the years, whether it's involved with them, inspired by them, or just, you know, com connected to them in some way, that it's just fascinating to hear their stories. So, you know, so no, it's, so it is, it is able to keep going after three years and still have 
interesting episodes. Well, I think they're interesting. Anyway. <laughs> so, so what brought you into making it Oasis? Because you've openly admitted on the podcast that there was a time after the first three albums where you dipped in and out of them and you weren't so passionate about them. What makes you then in like 2017 go, right, this is it? Because it yeah. made that youth thing and what they meant to you. Or... Exactly. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's like your first love, isn't it? Like they, they were, other than, you know, like Michael Jackson and the Blues Brothers or whatever, which I was, you know, I listened to a lot of in the, as a kid. You know, they were like my band and made me change my hair and made me, you know, change, walk in a different way and stuff like that. And and there is just something that extra special about them. You know, I mean, we're going to talk about the Manics or, you know, whether, you know, someone like Blur are probably, you know, better musicians, Ocean Colour Scene are better musicians, the Stone Roses. Are, you know, there's all these other bands that have, that have got that are better in so many ways. But there's just something special about them. You know, there's just something that just really sticks out, whether it's the, the, you know, the simplicity of the songs or the, you know, the, the brothers or the, the way they dressed or the way they acted or, or just the fact they got so massive or the interviews or the, whatever it was, or I suppose actually it's the combination of everything. It just made them, you know, it elevated them. So even if, you know, a, a, a new Oasis song wasn't as good as the new song by another band, you would still, it was the Oasis song that you were excited about because they were the, you know, they they were the special ones that you cared about. Um, like I was I was talking on another podcast the other day about how Bush, you know, were absolutely massive in America, yet no one in England could have cared less. And yet when Oasis went off to try and conquer America, it was like, come on, Oasis, let's go and conquer America. It, so, yeah. yeah, so when it came to starting the podcast, I mean, I think it was just a case of them always being the band that I kind of go back to and also you know just like a commercial thing of thinking well probably people will want to listen to this you know whereas if you I love the Manic Street Preachers I love um, uh, Super Furry Animals for instance I bloody love and Divine Comedy you know there's certain bands but you know a Super Furry Animals podcast would would that get many downloads I don't know I mean would I want to listen to like hundreds of episodes on Super Furry Animals probably not as much as I love their music you know, I don't really... Welsh language albums. Oh, well, that would be great. You know, I'd, I'd love to do that, actually. I'd love to yeah. do... Um, I love Serge Gainsbourg. And uh, I'd love... Well, I'm, I'm not, you know, clever enough to do it. But if someone could go through and, like, translate all of Serge Gainsbourg's songs into English and break them all down and, like, what do they actually mean? I would love that. But anyway. Um, but, yeah, so I knew Oasis would be popular as well. So it is partly that. Yeah, of course. But to me, I think... Even though they're very different bands, I think there is a through line with with the two, Manix and Oasis, because, uh, again, the basic subject of what we're talking about is arrogance. And mm. and these two had it in spades. And, but, and ironically, for two bands that were slagging off other artists all the time at any given interview, any, on stage at any given time, there was still a mutual respect between these two bands. Yeah, that was interesting. It is interesting that actually. Um, I don't think there was ever any kind of animosity between them. And obviously, Mannix supported Oasis at um, Nebworth. I don't know if they supported them at other gigs as well. Actually. I think, I think yeah, uh, two nights at Main Road as well. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, so yeah, so I think there was there was that um, respect there. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't remember. But it's it's quite it's quite funny because you know I was sort of. You know, knowing I'd be talking to you, I was sort of thinking back 
to like because everyone I speak to has kind of got an, an Oasis origin story, but I haven't really got a Manix origin story. I remember like um, you know, obviously by the time uh, a Design for Life came out, I knew who the Manix were. You know, like I, I was I got into really into sort of um, British guitar music. I was into like Green Day and stuff like that in 1994. But by the end of 1994 is when I got into o- Oasis and was then sort of digging into other kind of Britpop and indie bands. And it was really into 1995 when I went full in on them. Um, but yeah, it, it was weird, like thinking back, I was like, well, no, because I, I do I remember hearing about Richie disappearing. And I think I remember reading about it in the NME. But, but my first memory really of them is the NME talking about um, Manix fans writing in their diaries in intense black ink. <laughs> yeah, and, and that was the big thing. It's like, oh, the Manix—they're that—they're that sort of what? Well, we call it now emo, don't we? But they were that like emo band that people, you know, people cared so passionately about them that they would write in their diary in intense black ink. You know what I mean? And and as a as someone that sort of fought on the Oasis side of the indie wars. I was quite sneering about that at the time and it was only, and obviously I loved everything must go when it came out. Um, I think it was then later on, like um, so probably as I was um, in like upper six and then going to university is where I really like got into the earlier albums and I had um, Holy Bible on tape and I had a cassette player in my car driving up and down to university um, I didn't have that many tapes, so so I ended up absolutely hammering the Holy Bible, going up and down, like driving like up to down to Leicester, um, and I just yeah I wore the tape out. I absolutely fell in love with it and just and everything about them. So throughout university, uh, then obviously this is my truth and all that sort of stuff. Then comes out that year, but I just you know really really devoured them and probably my uni years were my biggest sign of Manix fan years. And my dissertation was um, on politics and pop music, uh, my uni dissertation. And so I, that was primarily inspired by the Manix and um, Billy Bragg. So there you go. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure I really have an, an Oasis origin story, just that I heard them on the evening session and just thought, as a 13, 14-year-old, right, that is it. I, I'm in. Right. And, and they were... I was a fan of Oasis before the Manics. I got into the Manics about 1997. But I think what I loved in both of them is, was there the the confidence they had in abundance? If you're a band, you've got to have complete confidence and trust in everything, you know, in yourself. And we have. You know, we came from the most empty, depressed place in the whole, you know, in the whole of this country. We had to create ourselves. You know, Camus, a food writer, said, you know, God does not exist and I am God. And that was our philosophy from the start. Yeah. And the difference I feel is Oasis believed it. Oasis, they said they'd be the biggest band in the world, and they believed it. Mm. It was, we'll go out there, we'll destroy the world. The Manics were, we'll sell 16 million records of our debut album, then we're going to split up. It was like self-destructive. It, yeah. it was It was more more for the, with Manics, it was more for the, the impact of the words and the, and the image, yeah. I think, than it was. Even when they say, like, we'll set fire, t- not that I was a fan then, but we'll set fire to ourselves on top of the pops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, well, you know, it was more of an art statement, wasn't it? Yes. We're going to, we're going to sell this many, we're going to change the world kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's the big difference because you're absolutely right. They're both arrogant in, you know, in very, very different ways. 
And so the man, the, the Oasis arrogance is that kind of laddish, boorish kind of, you know, getting into fights, you know, but it was a, it was a, we're going to, we're the best band in kind of a, um, you know, that, that sort of, you know, much more boorish and laddish sort of way, you know, um, whereas the Mannix, it was, I think it was much more of an art statement mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and I, I love it, but that's the thing. I wish there was more bands like that today that would be like, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And, and yeah, and slagging people off, you know, I know that it's, it's funny. Most people in the arts now, maybe it's because you kind of need to, um, you know, you need to get people, um, you know, you need to sort of engender a community around you if you're going to make money as a musician now. Um, you know, and everything's about instilling community and stuff. Whereas actually these people like pushed away, like deliberately pushed away would spit at their fans. And, you know, and then like, and, and that made us love, love them more. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Manix, it was much more about, um, you know, that artsy statement and and they were it's so different so different as well that the oasis being so laddish i mean liam had, had like a, was a pretty boy you know and, and had that but you know with the especially with nikki and richie being you know so um you know just dressing up in the way they did and and you know all the sloganeering like all rock and roll is homosexual and all that sort of stuff like it was very um agitated you know they were trying to agitate people it's, it's um, like to me it's like the manix needed that as body armor and oasis didn't it, yeah that's a good point that to, to show to the world and oasis were just right this is us you like us buy our records and that's it mm, they already had that confidence i suppose yeah so it's the manix of the yeah oasis have got that confidence already and they're going out there and they're just telling everyone but yeah whereas the manix maybe they didn't have that confidence what, you ask me if I'm happy? Listen, I've got 87 million pound in the bank. I've got a Rolls Royce. I've got three stalkers. I'm about to go on the board at Manchester City. I'm part of the greatest band in the world. Am I happy with that? No, I'm not! I want more! You know, they were so aware of... I mean, Oasis were aware of the history of music. Um, it's, it's just the difference between punk and rock, isn't it? Like, if, if, you're, if you're punk, it's about the artistic statement and it's about knowing the image and, and all that sort of thing whereas the oasis side was much more just like yeah we're going to sell this many records but it was much more of an every man kind of thing whereas the manics were definitely trying to set themselves apart as looking different being different trying to you know like the i remember i think it's in simon price's book that we were talking about before we started recording uh, where he says um you know guns and roses wore makeup and had long hair but you knew they were uh, heterosexual you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas the Manics, you didn't have a clue what, you know, what, what the, you know, that this was really different and like quite challenging for people. And and I think the thing with the Manics is they lied about their sex life. They lied about the drugs they took. Yeah, yeah. They lied about their ages. Yeah, everything. It was, all, it was all, it was all a sham, wasn't it? Yeah. But I think, I think the two of them, they could see themselves in each other because the message may have been different, but I think the intent was the same. They, they you know, they, they wanted to be massive bands, but obviously Oasis had a more direct connection with the songwriting and the way they were, so mm. they became bigger. But you know, you would if in nineteen ninety one, you'd never have thought the Mannix would be playing the Millennium Stadium on Millennium Eve, and no. you know, you'd never think they'd get that big. You'd think there'd be a two, three album band, and that's it; they'd fade away. And here we are, in two thousand twenty. They're they're still going. I know it's crazy. I mean, I think that 
it's it's funny it's not funny at all but it's one of those ironic things you know it's similar like the like basically the fact that um you know it was richie's disappearance and then and then the fact that they get so massive with the this is my truth album mm. um and having a couple of number one singles off that and things like that and yet you know they've stripped away everything that that for me i mean i love those albums don't get me wrong but but in terms of what the most exciting thing for me about them was all the dressing up and was the ambiguous sexuality and was the like the um you know the 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 sort of all these ideas sort of spewing out of them in the in the songs whereas that kind of gets stripped away and is much you know and then they're you know literally they're just wearing like khaki aren't they and they're you know there's there's so much they're so sort of stripped down and yet then they all have this massive massive success and but there is just this sadness about them that um you know because they and and that's been there to the you know it's sort of hung over them isn't it that you know, there's they had this unbelievable success, but they could never really celebrate it because Richie's not there. And, so, and, and the biggest album, really, this is my truth, is such a downbeat, brooding album. Yeah. Just, even you know, if if Gold Against the Soul or or Everything Must Go was ultimately their biggest album, you'd understand it. But this is my truth. It's actually really downbeat mm-hmm. and like a lot of references to Richie and loneliness and yeah. And, I mean, the everlasting is heartbreaking. I mean, it's 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 hard to even listen to. Um, you know, in the beginning when we were winning, when our smiles were genuine, you're like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, I mean, it's so powerful. Um, they are, you know, and James is singing on that album, I just think is out of this world. I think it's probably his best singing, yeah. um, you know. It's when he, he started losing that growl, I think. And some people complained about that, but it's, it became a lot more soulful. Yeah, yeah, and he, he's he's just aware of his range, and he can just kind of he was just given the space maybe to to sing, especially well, it's, yeah, I mean literally the space to sing because you know when he's singing Richie's words, it's like images of picture, but get the it's like how the hell am I supposed to put this in a line, you know? Um, uh, yeah, but whereas then actually when there's so much more expanse and space in those later albums that you you've got that ability to to actually you know, to, to express, express the way, you know, express the songs a lot better. But, um, yeah, but so, so then the arrogance then change, you know, cause I suppose that's the thing, like when you say we're going to do this, when you put yourself on that pedestal, like you've then got a couple of ways you can go, can't you? Because you can like do it and then go like what, you know, like, like burnout, it's burnout or fade away. It's the classic, but you know, yes, you can like, say yeah all right we split up and then we're gone and they just never do anything again they would have just been one of those like curios whereas they they've carried on you know both bands ended up carrying on in that way that it's like okay well they're no longer pushing to be the best band in the world or to be the biggest band in the world but then i think they've always you know they've always still had that belief like i love that line in masses against the classes when he says like we're the only thing left to believe in yeah. You know, and you're like, yes, like, you know, I, I think that was such a great statement, that song. Uh, Hello, It's Us Again, We're Still So In Love With You. And and that, that for me, is, is my favourite of their stuff when they um, when they are, like, self-reflective. But in that kind of, yes, we're still here and we're still the best band in the world sort of thing. Well, I, I think the album since Richie's, understandably, they're going to be have a different feel to them and a different atmosphere to them because of the lyrics. But I, yeah. I, I think 
Nikki's lyrics now, more and more as the albums have gone on, become introspective and more full of self-doubt, which they, don't get me wrong, they probably had when they were 17 and 18, but they didn't want to write that. And Mm. it's it's just coming out in a different way now. Whereas there's still sparks there, sparks of anger there, but it's not, you know, they're 49, 50 or whatever they are now. It's, It's going to be a different kind of thing now. Build a rough routines It makes me safe and clean It crucifies parts of me But never seems to make me bleed Only in you do we see ourselves Only in you can we imagine and then She's taking some time The last time I saw them was playing um, Truck Festival, which is like a local festival to me in, in Oxfordshire. And I was amazed that they were playing it. I mean, Truck does normally get like one or two big bands. You know, like Franz Ferdinand have played it and um, like Maximo Park and the Vaccines and stuff like that. But um, but to get the Mannix, like that to me is royalty. You know, like the Mannix coming, I was like, this is, you know, for me, Mannix are a Glastonbury headliner. You know what I mean? I know they're actually not these days, but... But still, so for them to play like just down the road from me it was amazing. And I hadn't seen them for years um, because I've, you know, I, to be honest, I've dropped off them a bit. I still, I still follow. Like what tends to happen with the Manics is they'll come out. I'll be excited when there's a new single, and I'll hear it, and I might listen to the album like once or twice, and then it kind of goes away. Or I might like if there's a certain song that really speaks to me, like Walk Me to the Bridge, like Show Me the One, that Rewind the Film, like the certain big singles that came out that I was like, yeah, yeah, that's great, and that. It goes on a playlist or, or, you know, I keep listening to it. But other than that, the, the later ones, I haven't, um, haven't you know, spent the time to try and digest as much. But the, uh, yeah, seeing them live. So I haven't bothered seeing them live. Seeing them live at Truck, it was, it felt, it just felt sad to me because what um, this was about three years ago. Okay. Um it just felt a bit sad because like it really did feel like going through the motions here's another gig where, where's this a little festival you know a little oxfordshire festival okay you know it didn't it wasn't exciting it wasn't like dangerous or you know all those things that they really? were and also i think that the, the the audience as well i mean i'm used to see i saw them a few times in the um in sort of late 90s early 2000s and you still had like you know, all the glitter kids coming out and wearing their feather boas and, you know, with their makeup on and everything and like, you know, eyeliner and just looking like Rocky Horror Show kind of stuff. And and it just, it was such an exciting part of it because it wasn't just seeing a band. It was, this is the Manics and this is like a crazy night out where you see, you know, the freaks come out. You know what I mean? It was brilliant. Whereas it wasn't that, it was a bunch of kids, you know, who were there just to have a party and wear glitter on their faces and like dance about and 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 then you know I'm singing along to every word and I'm looking around and there's kids just sort of nodding their heads and messing around on their phones I'm like 
this is the Mannix. What are you? This is just so frustrating to me. I think, so I, must... I think they've been doing too many festivals lately, especially like mid-afternoon sets and all that kind of thing. And I, I don't really? think that's really their vibe. No, no. I just think they're, they're just, they've reached that sort of period where they're like, yeah, fine, we'll do it. You know, and they're just happily kind of going along and doing it just for the, just for doing it. But it, it, and I didn't want that really. I'd much rather they kind of, almost like Shed 7 did. You know, Shed 7, they go away and then every two years they come back and they do their big Shed Sember tour. And it's exciting. You know, people get really, really excited about it. And this is Shed 7. You know, Shed 7 are mid-level for me and man, super, super top level. And so, yeah, but I think if now if Shed 7 played or Mannix played, Shed 7 would probably sell a bigger crowd than the Mannix. You know, which is crazy but i think they, they've almost yeah i agree i think they have spread themselves a bit too thin yes yeah and and, and targeting audiences that potentially won't really be into it or and it, i don't know it's just weird it, it, the last two or three years so then oh they're playing that festival they're playing that festival they're playing that festival and it's a bit like i don't know it just doesn't seem right to me especially in the middle of the day i know i've seen the manics once in the middle of the day and it was fine but it just it wasn't right no no, you need, it needs to be in the dark. I don't, I don't think they really work outside. I mean, they're a dark, you know, they should be in the dark, shouldn't they? You know, those songs, I think those songs are sort of inside arena. Obviously, it'd be yeah. great to see them in you know, a small venue, but they are an inside arena sort of band for me rather than a, a big, rather than a big stadium band. It just doesn't feel right. You know, they are still like going back to the whole, why we're kind of talking about and completely off topic, but you know, they are an introspective group of people that are like, like Graham Coxon, you know what I mean? They are quiet, shy people that have the opportunity to get on stage and really show off and just express themselves for like an hour and they go away again. And that, yeah, I don't think that really works on a stage. I think it would be far better if, if they, you know, just came back every two years and did like an arena tour, something like that. I think that would probably be better. Yeah, I'd agree. And also, and I I think they've been too focused on back the back catalogue. I.e. they've done Holy Bible anniversary tour, which was amazing. They've done everything must go. They've done this is my truth. They're now they're now bringing out Gold Against the Soul reissue, which I'm sure they won't be able to tour because of what's going on at the minute. But yeah. it's a bit too much like looking back. Yeah. Well, they've been they've been celebrating. I, I might have said this on another podcast, but. To me, um, it feels like they've been celebrating their legacy in one way or another for like 20 years. You know mm. what I mean? It's like every album has been like, even from Everything Must Go, Everything Must Go was like, you know, let's celebrate Richie having gone. And then, and then the, This Is My Truth was like, okay, we're really actually sad he's gone now. And then uh, it's Know Your Enemy after that? Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, and then that felt then more like a, no, we're getting, you know, that was too much of a downer. Let's get back to aggressive. And then and then you've got the Journal for Plague Lovers one, which was like, you know, no, we're getting back to the, um, you know, it, it's always like, you know, oh, no, let's celebrate this period of ourselves. Let's celebrate this period of ourselves. There is... I know there has been, I know there has been other, like like I was saying about Rewind the Film, I mean, that was so different. Like, wow, that's that's just something completely different from the Manics. And, and I agree. I think that actually stop celebrating yourself all the time and stop talking about, you know, Richie all the time and actually just move on and just do different stuff. They know? certainly are a self-referential -ref band. Mm. And 
it's 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 and they always try and they always whether it's subconscious or not they always react to the album they made before so yes. that, they'll always dismiss it they go oh it, when it comes out that's the greatest thing ever two years down the line oh well we didn't like really like that well well, well this album's great though this new one <laughs> yeah yeah but they do sort of swing one way and the other don't they it sort of tends to be like a, a big upbeat pop brash brash album and then um yeah, the one with what was the one called? We show me the wonder on it. Uh, rewind the film, that one. Is that called Rewind the film? Okay. Yeah. So because that wasn't that the one they said like this is our last chance at like mainstream success. Uh, yeah, they, they... That, that was postcards from Young postcards. Man. Postcards. Okay, postcards of Young Man. Yeah, they were like, yeah, this is our, this is our. Um... You'll have to edit out all these mistakes I made. <laughs> <laughs> As I have said, I've sort of dropped off them a bit, but I remember they were saying like this is our like um, this is our last attempt at the big big success and i remember them seeing them on strictly come dancing and things like that and you're like wow this is weird but um yeah whereas then they then swing the other way so it is uh it is, it is interesting but it's also i suppose anyone when when you get to that period when you get to that era of like the next album the next album it's same with um, paul weller's a similar thing every couple of albums you know clockwork there's another weller album and i'll you know let's say the thing i'll listen to it and be like yeah yeah that one was good but you know it's just too much really i've run out of space my manix my manix hard drive is full i'm afraid <laughs> that's right we'll get we'll get back to talking about the early years then because that'd be more exciting too um yeah. the the best thing i think about both oasis and the manix is their insults yes just the, the slagging off of a, i mean in a twitter in the world of twitter and instagram and facebook now these bands would be immediately cancelled yeah, <laughs> they, they would not be allowed on tour. They would not get a record deal. They're, they're just they'd release one album. Right, thanks, thanks for that, lads. Bye. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely, it is. I mean, but it was great because, like, um, you know, you, it's just interesting. It's fun, isn't it? And it meant it meant that the enemy was, um, it meant that the enemy became like a soap opera. You know, that was my soap opera. Yeah, finding out who. You know, who was Liam or Noel going to slug off this week? Who was Nicky Wire going to slug off this week? And it was great, you know, because you had this sort of all this back and forth. And, um, you know, um, I just I just really miss that, like I said. But but, yeah, it is. There are some absolute classics. I mean, it's interesting on the Oasis side that um, the whole like uh, Damon Noel wishing Damon uh, got AIDS thing yeah. has kind of come back up recently. And um, yeah, and it's funny. It's something that Liam on Twitter will go to when uh, if ever anyone's like, you know, oh, you said this or you shouldn't have said this to him on Twitter. He'll reply and say, at least I don't wish AIDS on people sort of thing. <laughs> so it's obviously it's it's like the one thing he can still go back to. But Nicky, but, Nicky Wire himself did that about three years earlier. He he said about Michael Stipe, but. I wish you go, right, yeah. go the same way as, as Freddie Mercury. <laughs> that is brutal. What, where did that even come from? I, uh, I don't know. Uh, there, there's an old interview somewhere of Nicky just saying about the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, about how they were at Bowie and all that kind of stuff. They were hypocrites, they were this, and they should all just shoot themselves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like Freddie Mercury, the tribute. I just, I'm glad he died. It's just, no respect in someone in his lifestyle, a complete decadent lifestyle. I'm glad he died. Tribute was pathetic. All these old freaks, we've all slept with probably a thousand million people between them. 
becoming indignant and pompous, you know, lecturing me, you know, a young person. I don't want to know about their stupid, twisted morals. And David Bowie is a confirmed atheist all his life. Gets down and prays to God. They should all shoot themselves. I think it was in the, in the news that Michael Stipe had AIDS. And, oh, and, oh, yeah, because he'd shaved his head and he got very thin, didn't he? And um, and I remember at the time he came out as um, he said, I remember I remember like the headline. It was like, I'm not heterosexual. I'm not homosexual. I'm just sexual, he said. And it was very unusual at the time for like rock stars to to come out like that. Which um, as a fact, yeah, yeah, should em- really should embrace that kind of thing. They would now. But back then. With, yeah. with their ideology that shouldn't have been an issue really yeah yeah i'm just i just searched um searched up some of their quotes and you've got like uh nikki on robbie williams uh, october 1996 covering george michael's freedom that makes me sick he said right that's it new attitude i'm back and does a fucking cover version to show we can't write a song and never could in the fucking first place <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant um yeah, it's just great that, um, it, you know, why not? Why not just just slag people off? I just think it's hilarious. I mean, well, I, remember, it might... I remember like, uh, oh, what was it? Um, the Beta Band or the Beta Band? I never know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what was I saying? Like Nicky's saying is something like uh, a, shithead, a shithead bag of cunts or something you're saying. Is that <laughs> just what he called them? It's just like, it's awful. It's playground. But yeah. at the same time, you've got to go, yeah, it's quite funny. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I think that's great. It's, uh, it is, you've just got to, I mean, it, it must be tough because then um, you then kind of have that situation of like, right, well, what if you bump into these people? Um, but yeah, but why not? Why not just, you know, it, at least it's interesting, at least it's exciting and different and you know, and like they said, it was then it got them into the enemy. It got them. I think he said, like, we were number 94 in the charts and everyone was talking about us. And that was it. I mean, that's why the whole for real thing happened, wasn't it? Because everyone's sort of going, oh, yeah, well, you know, they're just making it up. They're just deliberately trying to do this. But actually, um, you know, there's nothing more to them. They're nothing. And then that's why he's, he's gone and done that to uh, to say that. But. You well, know. he's admitted he's admitted since to being a bit coy sometimes when he said when he said something revolting about an artist and they, you know, they're at a festival or something and they're passing or, and it's that awkward moment of mm, what, have I said mm. something about you because you're looking at me like this? Yeah, no, I, know. I, I know you're a big fan of Billy Bragg and of course there's that mm. Toilet Gate, yes, saga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, yeah. What was it? He said. Um... I can't I remember what he said now. Well, Billy Bragg had a go at them for the Mannix for having their own toilets. Having backstage. their own toilets backstage, that was it, yeah. And Nicky's, some, it was something along the lines he said on stage, I wouldn't let his dick piss in my toilet. Uh, <laughs> stop sealing Woody Guffro songs, and you big-nosed twat. <laughs> <laughs> that is classic. I've just got here talking about Glastonbury. He said... Um, Someone ought to build a bypass over this shithole on stage at the Glastonbury Festival, nineteen ninety-four. Yeah, but it was great. It's good to be in Sendry, isn't it? It's good to be. It's just good to wind people up and stuff. And you know, and and the Oasis boys had that as well. But it was just. I mean, Oasis was tongue in cheek as well. But as I say, it was. 
I don't know. It's hard to explain. There was something different. It did feel there was something different about it. I think Nicky, you could do, especially with Nicky's massive smile. Yeah. You know, he's got. You can tell he's he's breaking. You know, anything he's saying that that like that massive Cheshire grins only like you know ten seconds away, isn't it? Whereas like you know you can tell when you know when you know Liam and Noel when they're rude about someone, it's because they actually hate them and would probably punch them in the face if they could. Whereas you know I don't think Nicky would do much pie, much damage to anyone really I say build some more fucking bypasses over this shit hole and no no knows what he's doing he, he he's I think Noel's got a bit of a smirk when he's when you see him in these interviews and he's saying all this shit. He knows. He he, he knows he's getting a reaction. That's what it is. He's, he's poking the bear. Yeah, of course. Of course. Like he when does. he said, uh, you know, he's obviously off his head at some award ceremony. Like, everyone does drugs. You do drugs. You do drugs. It's like it's like having a cup of tea in the morning. Yeah. In his brain, he knows. He knows that's going to kick off. But yeah. That's what he wants. And yeah, like, of course. The media, it's massive news, yeah. Yeah, and the media and the fans are, are feeding that because he's mm. doing it. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's funny now that, um, you know, with all the kind of the Liam and Noel antics that still go on now, um, there is an argument that actually, you know, because there's, there's all the discussion that, that Liam takes it too far. Liam's often very rude about Noel's wife and, and there's been times when, I think uh, Noel posted that Liam had um, sent Anais, uh, Noel's daughter, like sort of slightly threatening messages and stuff. So, you know, it, it gets quite unsavoury uh, in that side of it. But actually, you know, if it's not for Liam and Noel having a go at each other, then they wouldn't be getting half the press that they do. I mean, that that's ultimately what people always want from it's probably what I want the least, actually. I'd much rather hear them talk about, you know, the music or the, or actually something else interesting. But that's it's what weird, most people are asking. It's a weird thing. I think back then it was exciting, but now it's it's more of a drag now, isn't it? Because it's being played out over Twitter essentially, and and yeah, they talk to each other indirectly through interviews. Yeah, so it ends up being kind of yeah, but you get that sort of back and forth, but. It is, um, it is just a bit unsavoury. I've, I've sort of talked about it on the podcast. I just find it a bit boring. And, um, you know, and, and it just sort of does my head in a bit. I, I find it equal parts kind of amusing, sad and boring. In, and, so, and depending on who's saying what at what time, I kind of sit somewhere in that kind of triangle. Yeah. Um, but then what you then tend to have on, on Twitter is all of the, like, uh, Liam fans and Noel fans... Like there is, there's quite a, there is sort of a split. Obviously, there's a lot of people like me who are kind of in the middle, but you do have this split where people are just, you know, suddenly like just attack Liam or attack Noel and support Liam or whatever, and and it's just, you know, it's just I just find that even more tiresome. I'm like, come on, guys, it's like, it's, it, you know, I, I don't think it's fake because I think it genuinely is sort of it's just how they've always been that they've always sort of had their you know, dirty laundry in public and Liam. But, but yeah, I just think, oh, come on. But Liam's just that volatile. I mean, like the other the other day outside of the Noel thing, um, a book had, a book got published 
um, by a guy called Daniel Rachel called um, Don't Look Back in Anger. And then, um, and it was quoted in it, this came out like eight months ago, and McGee was quoted in it. It was talking about, going back to the whole um, Blur thing, um, why did Blur and Oasis fall out? And uh, Noel says in the interview in this book that, oh, it's because um, Liam and uh, Liam and Damon fell out over a girl. And I think that's where it comes from. And then that, the book came out like eight months ago, and then a few weeks ago it ended up like being a, a big interview, uh, sorry, a big headline in the sun, like all about Liam, like cheating on a girl with Damon Albarn and that sort of stuff. And that's like this massive story in the sun. And I think the author just asked Alan McGee, like who was interviewed for the book. Oh yeah. Apparently it was about a girl. And McGee's just sort of said, yeah, I think so. I think it was something about a girl. So then the son go and quote Alan McGee is sort of agreeing with them. And then Liam then starts attacking Alan McGee on, on, uh, on Twitter. And I'm like, what's he doing? So I almost, I had to like sort of feel like I, cause I, I, you know, I know Alan a bit now. And so I had to feel like I had to jump in and sort of go, no, Liam, stop, stop. Look, just look, read it properly. Like this is, this is the sun winding you up on purpose. And uh, I actually emailed like Debbie, his, his partner and manager to say, look, no, I don't think Alan meant that, you know, just, just be aware of what this is. Um, but yeah, it did sort of calm down after that. But, you know, he does, I don't think it's, I think he, he obviously knows what he's doing and he knows it will get attention but I think he genuinely just gets his phone and thinks, right, I'm just going to say this. You know, I don't think he's sort of checking with a publicist to say, right, I was thinking I might, I think I might call Noel's wife a witch again today. What do you think? What's our, what's the um, focus group say about that? You know, no, I think it is. <laughs> he knows what he's doing, but it is off the cuff. You're being hyped as the best band around at the moment. Is all the hype true? Yeah. It is. Yeah. Good. The best band <laughs> about today on the planet. It's a fact. You know, every, it's all too much of a love in these days. I don't know if anyone slags anyone off. Like, or if they do, it's not it's not coming across my... I, that's, that's what I say to... Like, I get um, messages from bands asking for me to feature them on the podcast and stuff. But I'll get a message being like, Hi, um, yeah, here's our, here's our demo. You probably think it's crap, but, you know, if you wanted to play it, that'd be great. But if not, don't worry about it. I'm like... Well, I'm not going to play it then, am I? What I want them to say is, you know, we're the best band in the world. You know, this is your chance to be there on the early days. Like, you know, stop listening to stop listening to Oasis all the time and check mm -hmm. us out. Like, you know, you want someone to have a bit of attitude, and you think, all right, go on then, I'll get, I'll give it a listen. But yeah, otherwise it's just, uh, otherwise it's just like, yeah, whatever. It's just boring. So okay. yeah. We I need new manics, mate. We need new manics. Well, it's been the case for quite a few years. There was a band that um, came out. There's a Kinesis. Do you, do you ever hear of them? No. They were they were very they they literally like split up the day they released their second album, and they were a bit heavier. They had more riffs than the manics, and they were uh, early twenties, I'd say. And their lyrics, the way their lyrics were, and their aggression was that was very manics like, but it was. This was about two thousand two, three, and it was never going to sell. Right. What, what it? But like, that's another thing about them. There's no real bands I can I can say that they've influenced. You could you you can hear an interview. Someone says, "Oh yeah, I like the Manics," but you don't hear. I can't really hear it in music about. No, that's interesting. Like, remember, like there was Towers of London a few years ago, and like there was, but it's it's a very hard one to walk that line. They're they're quite. Um, 
<clears throat> you know, they were unique in that way. And that, well, how do you be influenced by the Manics? I mean, you could look at like My Chemical Romance and like um, all those guys, like all the emo sort of bands that that very much like had that kind of um, they tapped into that same sort of teenage angst, you know, your, your dark hair and dark makeup and you know that sort of stuff. So they really, t you know, the, and that sort of mix between it's not goth. And it's not punk, it's sort of that somewhere in between in terms of both sound and look. So I suppose like emo, um, American emo was the sort of the, the kind of the natural follow on from what they were doing. But yeah, I mean, maybe like idols, idols have got that. Um, I mean, they don't look the parks, they've got their you know, beards and stuff, but, you know, they've got that about them. But yeah, it, it's such a it was I mean, because they were so unique with with the fact that it's like, you know, the two musicians and then you know and then two non-musicians that are you know that had that amazing look you know it's such a bizarre mix anyway but um yeah and it's just as i say it would be interesting i'd love it if if someone did come out and maybe they're out there i mean i just excuse me i just interviewed um debbie um turner from the band sister lovers who you know was very important in the oasis story and she manages a, an all-girl band called witch fever you know, and they've got it, you know, they've got that attitude and they've got the look and they're there, you know, so the, it's there in the punk scene. Mm. It's just, it's just, it doesn't then break through from like the underground punk scene to the mainstream. But soon to get on Radio 1 and stuff, it's, you know, and to get yeah, mainstream so success, it feels like you need to be a bit more, um, you need to look like Ed Sheeran and sound like Ed Sheeran, which is just heartbreaking. <laughs> the only band, the only other band that around the same time as Kinesis was a band called Miss Black America. I remember the name, but no, I haven't heard much. Yeah, they released a couple of albums and they, they kind of had the spirit. They had the, you know, their videos were quite similar to early Manix videos and they had that punkness and the, like, pretension to them. Mm. Yeah, they, they kind of fake. I think they really, I was looking on Spotify the other day, actually, and I think they released an album about six or seven years ago, which I have no idea about. Okay. Uh, other than that, Really but it was also it's also the um the the lyrics like the fact that they would the way That's they it. would just pull so many <clears throat> you know so much such a hodgepodge of like you know what's the line i'm strong uh, miller what is it i am stronger than mensa miller mailer plath and pinter yeah. like oh okay i've got some reading to do then miller mailer plath and pinter but it, you know yeah, the, it's you such know, a standout sentence in the initially you just don't know what it means this is what on earth yeah yeah, and then it's like so they're saying, "Go on, go off and you know, go off and read." So whereas you know, Oasis were just sort of telling us to go and listen to the Kinks and you know, and the Who and the Beatles, whereas actually the Manics would say, "No, go and go off and read Sylvia Plath and Noam Chomsky and things like that." And you're like, "Oh, okay, I'll best go and read that then." But yeah, so it was there was such an inspiration, and so it's that's the that's the thing, isn't it? It's you can be political and edgy in your music, in your lyrics, or you can have that sort of over the top kind of attitude or you can have that um that humor in interviews or you can have the songwriting but it's so rare to, to actually have that all combined in one package that yeah if a new band came out that had all that yeah i'd be really you know i'd be ready to to you know fall in love with them as my favorite new band but can't see it happening our kid <laughs> can i ask you a question there's a yeah, I, this is so um you know the song that they did with um, Nina Pearson, Your, yep. Love, Your Love Alone? When he sings, um, I could have, so Richie, so, sorry, Nicky only sings that one line in the whole song where he yep. says, 
I could have written all your lines. And I'm like, when I first heard that, you know, is it really... I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a reconstruct, reconstruction of that. I could have written all your lines. Yeah, I know. Because <laughs> it really sticks out, especially against, you know, two of the amazing singers. You know, but it goes, um, I could have written, and I could have showed you. And then he goes, I could have showed you how to cry. And it's like, wait, what's he saying? Is he is he saying that? This has bugged me for ages. I've never spoken to another Manic fan about it. Is he saying, like, arrogantly, I could have written all your lines? Or is he saying, um, you didn't have to go and kill yourself or disappear? Like, I could, I could have written all your lines. Like, you didn't have to... I, you, you shouldn't have had to think that you had to come up with a whole other album of material. I could have done that for you. Like you could have just played the guitar or you could have just left it, the band. It may be that. And especially considering the next album they released was journal for play glovers. And they were, you know, and they were, they were obviously planning to work on that, uh, Richie's back catalog, but the lyrics to your love alone is that a uh, the, lot of the verses are totally ripped from other songs. They're references to other songs. There's a Beatles reference. There's a, I mean, I think virtually every line is a is a nick from a song title. Even even their own, "You Stole the Song from My Heart." Even nicks. yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it's ironic to say I could have written all the lines, and he's nicking. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it yeah, like, it's it. I, I think it's so. Whereas Richie's lyrics were so. This song's about this. This song's about that. And and yeah, no, they're quite intricate. And Nicky's are more vague. Yeah, and yeah, the verse doesn't necessarily have to match up with the chorus in terms of its tone. Whereas, whereas, I guess that's why with Richie they were mood moodier and had more of a uh, aesthetic and and a togetherness about them that people grasped onto because they they were but but were they like little novels really? They're each song and yeah. My, my only letdown, I, I think Nicky's a great lyric, lyricist, but I do think he relies too much on saying the song title too much in the chorus. He does it a lot. Right, okay. He'll, he'll repeat the, yeah. the song title again and again and again. When I think, well, you could just put another word there, you know, another sentence there. Or... Mm, no, that's a good point. Yeah, it does, it does tend to do that quite a bit. Yeah, I found this... Um a lot of his stuff i think he's still he's got the ability to write you know really um brilliant lines and cover off brilliant subjects but i think sometimes it is it does just get a bit six form poetry and it does just get a bit kind of vague and it feels a little bit lazy sometimes the one the worst one i think the one that really annoyed me was um s-y-m-m on yes. the this is my truth album because you know he says, like, you know, so if people don't know, it's the song about the, the Hillsborough disaster and then the, the cover up of it and stuff. And, and um, you know, and it's just like the subject of this song. I've thought about it for so long, but it's really not the kind of thing that people want to hear us sing. It's like, no, it's exactly the kind of thing that people want to hear you sing. <laughs> this is this is what the Manics do. You know, that should have been. I mean, the, the, and especially I think the fact it's so. It's got that sad, empty, open sound of that album as well. But it's got that, um, you know, so it's just the, the only thing I can think, the only way I can kind of defend it is the fact that the chorus says enough. South Yorkshire mass murderer, how can you sleep at night? So that's the only thing I think, OK, well, look, that's what that's our statement. South Yorkshire mass murderer, how can you sleep at night? But for me, like, that's a strong statement. Why not just 
focus on that and all the other stuff about the context of this song i've thought about it for so long it's yeah. like oh no that's not very good at all you know why don't you actually really dig into it and well even you know, even simon price in his book says well why do you just if you think thought about it for so long why don't you just write it <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but, I, I don't remember that but yeah yeah i would i would say he's made amends with that with 30 year war from rewind the film because all right it's the same kind of topics, you know, he's covering Orgreave and Hillsborough and, and basically the Tories being charged for 30 years in injustice. And, 30, and the lyrics to 30 Year War are just amazing to me. And that's what really should have been being said also in South Yorkshire Mass, Mass Murderer. It's that same, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's an amazing song musically, but the verses are awful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's not good. Anyway, but yeah, no, I thought that was, uh, yeah, well, thanks for, for clearing up that Your Love Alone thing that's bugged me for ages. But uh, yeah, there you go. Right, I'm going st- to steal your trick. So to, to leave, I'm going to ask you to pick what your favourite Manic song is. Oh, no. I, I know. I that. didn't you. Oh, she's on the other foot now. This is what I normally spring on <laughs> other people. Oh my god, that's really, really, really hard um, because they've meant so much to me at different times. Um, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear! Why would you do that to me? <laughs> you know what? I'm going to go with because it's one that gets stuck in my head probably the most, and whenever I I watch the video of it or whatever I think about it, I just it just gives me such a big smile. Uh, Little Baby Nothing. Okay. I was not expecting that one. Yeah, no, I love Little Baby Nothing. I think it's so it's so brilliant. I mean, the firstly, that you know, that they took the melody of um, Suicide Alley, didn't they? And they sort of reused that, which I think is quite cool. But I just think the lyrics are so clever, you know, and, and like all this stuff now, talking about like women in music and people complain when there's not enough, you know, women on, on the stage at Glastonbury or whatever you know the Manics are talking about this in like 1990 um you know that the uh and uh, you know just the women being abused in, the, in various things and just to get Tracy Lords in I know the plan was to get, get Kylie in as well which I just think would have been the best thing ever but to get Tracy Lords in and it's just so clever and it appeals to me like I mentioned I'm a gun and it plays around with a lot of those ideas as well the video is great yeah, it's just so beautiful. Um, uh, yeah, your beauty and virginity used like tawns. Used, it's just so many, so it's all those classic lines. But yeah, so uh, let's have a bit of Little Baby Nothing. Excellent. Thank you very much, James.
Now it's time to look at boxes and lists, the B-side that we picked by the finger of Manic's past last week. Boxes and lists is the B-side to Your Love Alone Is Not Enough. It was released on 23rd of April 2007. Emma, what are your first thoughts on this? Well, I just want you to hear, I have literal notes. Um, But I'm going to also highlight that the fact that one of my notes says, I love a list, also a fan of boxes. Again, I think we covered that last time. But I had to write it down. Um, My first thing that I've written, I'm going to just preface this. Oh, good use of preface there, Emma. Well done. Um, I have to praise myself because no one else does. The um, I have I have to preface this by saying I am familiar with a lot of B sides. Obviously, I am a huge, huge Manix fan. But this is one of the ones that I don't listen to very often, so it was quite fresh to me. I own Your Love Alone is not enough somewhere, and I have this, but I don't listen to it very often. So it was a bit of a oh surprise. Um, and the first thing I've written is. <gasps> They reference the title in the very first line. I love it when a song does that. I get very excited. And then I've written, then they say it a lot. (laughs) I've written, there are some odd things I've written. I wrote this quite late last night, as you know, because I told you. Um, It's very catchy. I've written, goodness, this sounds like something else. I'm not 100% sure what. (laughs) Then I've written, chord progression in the verses sounds very similar to my uneducated brain to condemn to rock and roll oh okay from my perspective i think there's a very euphoric quality that exists to manic songs it's existed right back since generation terrorists and it persists no matter what style of music each album's overall sound is trying to fit and for me as soon as you hear a manic song you know it's a manic song because it has this very sweeping euphoric melody And this definitely has it, so it definitely fits in with, well, their other songs, for want of a better expression. And my final note that I have written is, and like pretty girls, Oblivion exists. Is he pointing out that pretty girls exist because I already knew that? It's it's a strange old lyric, isn't it? I mean, it's a good good lyric, but if you actually just just stare at it and think, what, like pretty girls, Oblivion exists? Yeah. I mean... Is it saying, don't go out of a woman because it's like oblivion? Or is he saying they're two ends of a spectrum, pretty girls or oblivion? I mean, I... Nikki, if you're listening, please <laughs> enlighten me because I'm very... I was very bemused by that line. I sat for a long time last night going, what does that mean? But there, there's a line I really like in it. We'll dig their graves like unwanted, unwanted memories. Yes, that's a very good line. You can hear that it's part of the Send Away the Tiger's Era because at that time they were trying to get back to that more generation terrorist sound and and attitude and fierceness. Um, It's crunchy and it's got that metal chugging of the guitars in the verses, which James loved back in the day. Um, You you said it, you've pointed out that the verse and the chorus are really driving. Yes. And I just love it when James shouts, when he gets, you know, he doesn't do it enough nowadays, I don't think. But he, when he gets to the chorus, he just belts it out. One of the things I didn't write down, but I kept thinking, because I listened to it about four times in a row last night to try and sort of really cement my view on it. And one of the things I kept thinking was, this would be wicked live. What do you think about it being a B-side? Because I really like this song and I've liked it for years. Mm. 
but there's there's something about it which I think it works as a B-side. I don't think, even though I, it's better than some of the songs on Send Away the Tigers for me, for some reason, it, there's a hollowness or to it that I'm means gonna, it shouldn't be a album track. I'm going to agree with you, actually. I think there's, it would, I, I don't know if it would fit. I, like I said, for, for me, my brain was like, this would fit on Know Your Enemy if it was going to be an album track. I don't, picture it on send away the tigers i view it as this is a b-side there are certain songs um and i'm not going to name them and which is very irritating of me but i'm not going to in case we do this you know in case next the next b-side is one of the ones i was going to talk about and then i will lose my point but (laughs) there are certain songs that i listen to and i go oh this should absolutely have been on an album but this one it felt right that it was a a b-side yeah, absolutely. It does to me too. Um, we have, we've had a bit of response on Twitter. We, I did a p- poll um, rating five stars, four stars, three stars or two. Not one, yeah. because I think that's only reserved for fragments. Oh, God, yes. Five stars got 24%. Mm-hmm. Four stars got 48%. Yeah. Three stars got 22 And two stars got six. Uh, we've had a comment from Philly Mess um, on Twitter. I love this track. I didn't hear it when it was first released, but caught up a few years later. Would have fit. They disagree here. Would have fitted perfectly on the album and maybe a better track too than either of the songs the band has chosen so far. Ooh. Now the weird thing with what they did, I'm sure we'll cover it in time, is what they did with the reissue of Send Away the Tigers. Yeah. Getting rid of underdogs. Mm-hmm. Well, they did it with This Is Truth and This Is My Truth as well. Getting rid of a song and then replacing it with a B-side. Yeah. It's a strange way of looking, you know, celebrating your past. It is. But on... See, I'm going to I'm gonna agree with them now because I actually agreed with when they got rid of Underdogs and replaced it. I liked that. I like Underdogs. I mean, I don't dislike Underdogs. Even with the edit. <laughs> Yeah, see, this is this. We we we'll cover it, I'm sure. But I don't really, I don't really hear it that badly. Don't you? It was. It's one of those things that I'm gonna I'm gonna digress ever so slightly. If you've ever heard the song, it's not living if it's not with you by the 1975. My best friend insists that the words go collapse my face with the beautiful shoes. It's not living if it's not with you. I can't hear anything but that now. I, I don't want to know what the real lyrics are. Please never tell me what the real lyrics are. That's what they go like. And since I never heard it, and somebody said to me, oh my God, the, the edit in Underdogs, that little is really obvious. And now I can't not hear it. I think it may be for me, I because I listen to music really loud, sometimes you don't notice certain bits. When I listen to the, the rare times I listen to music quieter, I notice something that wasn't there before. I go, oh, so it might just be that. I don't know. But I know Sean, Sean Moore got quite shitty with, I'm on Sean's side. Okay, well, good, good. I'm glad. And I'm not, I'm not criticising making an album is a tricky process. It's a difficult thing. I have not released any albums I am very bad, as we have discussed, at sound editing, so I'm not one to judge. And singing the Macarena. Excuse me. <laughs> I think you'll find I can sing the Macarena, just not very high. <laughs> um, we've had another comment um, from at Bird Shoots. 
Um, he says, three out of five. I love hearing JDB tearing it up with his Les Paul as a manic again after the band's break and after Lifeblood. But that can be said for a lot of this era's songs. This one just isn't one of the stronger ones. Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I get that. So if I'm going to force you to give it a rating at five. <sighs> I'm going to go with a three. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I think three is 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 the way to go right so it's time for once more the finger of manix past i'm so excited to see what the finger will choose i'm scrolling i'm scrolling and say stop whenever you like whenever you like stop first republic okay listen to that i'll do the same thing i'll put a survey out on twitter ask for people's comments on it and we'll let you know next week. So next week, we're going to try something a bit different. We are going to venture into our first analysis of a Manix album. Very exciting. And do you know what that means? That means the finger of Manix Past is coming out again. One day, I n- no, do you know, I nearly said I'd like to meet the finger of Manix Past. That sounds particularly bad. I mean, you have, but... I have. <laughs> back then, you didn't know how important it was. I didn't. I just, you know... Thought it was a normal part of a hand. <laughs> so what we'll do is we'll dissect each track. We'll just give a bit of a background to the album and fan fan reaction and all that kind of thing. And it would be great if you listening at home could send us your reviews, be it written or audio, to manicspeaker at gmail.com. Um, so I'm going to pick it. Go for it. Am I shouting stop again? Well, not shouting say say Macarena <laughs> hey Macarena this is going to be a controversial one okay postcards from a young man oh oh well I'm instantly going to be on the defensive <laughs> and I think I am too I think I think we're on the same side on this one very much on the same team I think here yeah so yeah, if you want to let us know your opinions of postcards from a young man, please be kind. Uh, and let us know more of your Manix origin stories, manixspeaker at gmail.com.
And that is it for episode two. Contact us on Twitter. We're at MSP underscore pod. Please be polite. Don't be a troll. Uh, any criticism, please be constructive because, as you can tell, we're amateurs. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> uh, contact us at manicspeaker at gmail.com for your Manix origin stories, for your views on postcards from a young man. That is it. We love you one time. We love you two times. We love you three fucking times. Good night, Exeter, the most beautiful city in the world, for tonight, at least. Two friends who are so...